This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds family, this is Amit Goyal. We are in for a real special treat today as we learn about a really cool case from colleagues for the first time on Cardio Nerds from Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami, Florida. So really excited to welcome to the show again for the first time, Drs. Douglas Salguero, Francisco Yujueta, and Priscilla Wesley. Friends, welcome to Cardio Nerds. We just had a blast learning about each other and talking before the recording, but for the benefit of the audience, would you please introduce yourselves? So my name is Francisco Ucueta, an incoming PGY5 and second year cardiology fellow. I completed my internal medicine residency at Mount Sinai Medical Center. After completing a cardiology fellowship, my plan is to continue onto vascular medicine with a focus in peripheral vascular disease. My research interests in environmental cardiology and the effects of metal contaminants such as cadmium and lead in cardiovascular disease. It is my pleasure to be here today and I thank CardioNerds for the invite. Hello everyone, it's a pleasure to be here. My name is Priscilla Wesley. I did my medical school at Christian Medical College, Wellore. After moving to US, I took a gap to raise my three kids. I'm a week shy of graduating from cardiology at Mount Sinai Medical Center, Florida. By the time this recording will be released, I will be doing my advanced echocardiography fellowship at Houston Methodist. Thanks for having us. Hi, Cardinals. I'm Douglas Alguero. I'm a PGY2 in telemedicine, applying for cardiology this year. Very excited for be part of this amazing community. And I am from Guatemala. Central American country where I was born, raised and trained in medicine. And I moved to Miami around 2018 where I started a research fellow at the University of Miami and focus all my research in early cardiovascular markers for comorbid and risk factors for cardiovascular diseases. And now I'm planning to become an interventional cardiologist and CTO chief in the future. Like I said, friends, we are in for a real treat. We have with us fellows with an international background, excited to talk about a beautiful case in a beautiful location. So before we dive right in, Francisco, where are we hanging out today? So we're currently live from Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami Beach, Florida. We're currently recording from our new Skolnick Tower, which sits right on Biscayne Bay. We are lucky to practice cardiology in one of the most scenic locations in the United States. We usually come up to the top floor of this tower during our off time with a Cuban cafecito and our favorite cheese pastelito pastries to watch the boats parade through our bay and kind of envision ourselves, you know, having a day off and enjoying the South Florida sun. This all sounds so amazing. You've got a good food, an incredible view and phenomenal company. And I will say that Miami has a special place in my heart because, you know, since Cardinal started, Dan and I have only seen each other in person maybe like two or three times. But one of them was for the Sky Fells course, which is incredibly well organized in Miami. And there was one night we took to just celebrate, like Douglas said, this community of Cardinal nerds that have come together to elevate digital education. And we spent the better part of most of the night walking up and down Miami Beach. And it was so wonderful. So yes, we are here. We are back. Cardinal are in Miami with Priscilla, Francisco, and Douglas. Guys, let's dive into a case. What do we have? Let me introduce our case. This is 
a 35-year-old female with only known medical history of hypothyroidism who came to the ER after an episode of witness cardiac arrest at home. She was at her usual state of health until the morning of this presentation when she complained of generalized myalgia and fatigue. While talking to her husband, she was in the kitchen and she developed a sudden episode of what she described as heartburn and collapsed to the floor. Her husband immediately noticed that she had a pole. She called the rapid EMS and arrived and attempt to make the place of a transitanous spacer in there because she was having severe bradycardia. But immediately she went into PA arrest, unfortunately, and they started cold. And they transferred her to the ER. They noted that she was in ventricular tachycardia and they immediately cardioverted her. After that, she returned to spontaneous circulation. And the total time of all of this was 20 to 25 minutes approximately. And the family upon interview referred that she suffered from an upper respiratory infection recently for about a week, but no other medical conditions. The medical history of our patient basically referred to us surgeries in the past only one elective C-section, as I mentioned prior hypothyroidism on current levothyroxine, and oral contraceptives that were started only two months ago. Allergies, she denied, no family or any other history, and she was already fully vaccinated with three doses of COVID-19. So, well, knowing that history, I will invite our chief cardiac fellow Priscilla to enlighten us with her thought process about this initial presentation of this case. Priscilla, please, welcome. Absolutely. Thanks, Douglas. It's important to find out why this young woman with no prior sudden cardiac death history or any other cardiac history or family history of sudden cardiac death or premature atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease who has been relatively healthy until the morning of the presentation other than for hypothyroidism and an OCP is presented with sudden cardiac death. It's important to have a framework so that we don't miss any subtle clues or don't forget to include any diagnosis in our differential list. As I walked down to the emergency room, I tried to build an algorithm initially based on the presenting rhythm, which was PEA. So the first thing that comes to my mind is 5H and 5T, which we are taught in our ACLS class. Hypovolemia, hypoxia, hypothermia, hypo or hyperkalemia or calcemia, tension pneumothorax, pericardial tamponade, thromboembolisms, toxins, and trauma. The second framework that I would have is basically dividing them into blood supply-related structural causes or electrical causes. So one-third of the patients who present with PEA can have ischemia as the cause for PEA. So first, I would like to rule out an ischemic etiology, which would warrant me to send the patient to cat lab immediately, which is looking for ST elevation MI on EKG or looking for risk factors in her history. With a young patient like this with no cardiovascular risk factors, ACS due to plaque rupture embolization would seem less likely. The other differential that would seem likely in her age group, given that she had three kids and on OCPs was spontaneous coronary artery dissection. The other differential would be anomalous coronary artery with a malignant course or coronary vasospasm. Once I rule out ischemic etiology for her sudden cardiac death, the next question would be, does this patient has risk factors for structural heart disease or any known structural heart disease like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, ARVC or dilated cardiomyopathy? Or does she have an infiltrative process like sarcoidosis or hemochromatosis? 
if this heart is structurally normal, could this be an arrhythmogenic syndrome like WPW? So I would look for delta waves on EKG, long or short QT, or channelopathies like Brugada pattern on EKG or CPVT. In the setting that she had a URI recently, maybe we could also think of myocarditis with arrhythmias as presenting symptoms for sudden cardiac death. So ischemia for now seems lower, but it's a possibility given her age. Structural causes seems to be more of a higher possibility, given her PEA arrest and the use of OCPs, definitely thromboembolisms need to be ruled out. So the differential remains broad in this patient and further examination with physical exam, labs and other diagnostic workup will help us narrow the differential diagnosis. Thank you, Bushila, for that great framework for this initial presentation. And now I'm running to the ER trying to examine the patient while she's taking care with the ER docs. And I found her with a blood pressure of 8561, hypotensive. She was tachycardic in 150 beats per minute. The temperature was in 92, 93, and the respiration in 20. Then she was laying in the bed unresponsive, basically. Normocephalic, no trauma was noted, no scalp ecchymosis, no hematoma, nothing in the face, no periorbital ecchymosis. And the general exam of the eyes was no icterus, the conjunctiva normal, but in the cardiovascular system, the persistent tachycardia was there about 150. And pulmonary-wise, no rails, no crackles. She was, well, non-distressed. She was already intubated. There in the abdomen, there was no distension. The bowels were normally moving. There was no swelling or edema in, in the extremities. So at this time, we have Francisco, which is going to guide us and basically walk us through the lab work that we find in the initial presentation and also in the EKG and X-ray. So Francisco, please welcome. Uh, thank you, Douglas. So, you know, we see this patient and Douglas did a wonderful job of examining the patient and, and going through that. And now we get on, on our electronic medical records. And as we're looking at the labs, we keep in mind uh, the first potential differentials that Priscilla set out for us. So we look at any metabolic derangements in the patient that could have undergone cardiac arrest or sudden cardiac death. We look at, you know, electrolytes, sodium of 143, a potassium of 3.3, which is mildly decreased, BUN creatinine of 13 over 1.01, and chloride and bicarb of 107 over 24. She is mildly hyperglycemic at 197, which, you know, due to the stress that she was in, it may correlate to the sudden cardiac death episode that she had. Looking at her liver function tests and AST at 96, ALT 85, ALP is 44, which looks into the patient having, you know, hepatocellular pattern. But we look at the synthetic function, having albumin of 2.7, protein of 5.7, which is all normal. Looking at her CBC, we have a hemoglobin of 13 and a hematocrit of 39 are normal. Patient did come in with, for her husband, a potential URI symptom. We see a leukocytosis of 27.4, which is high, uh, which could be leukomoid reaction, although we still have that potential of myocarditis or possible infection in mind. Platelets of 333 as well. Her high sensitivity troponin, which we use at our institution, was 4,214, which is indicative of myocardial injury. NT pro BNP is 6,800, which could be due to a myocardial stretch as well. And a D dimer of 9.73, which, you know, could be secondary to the sudden cardiac death, or, you know, we have to potentially think of a PE as of the other differential. Next thing is CPK and lactic acid, which were both elevated. CPK at 433 and lactic acid is 6 which could be due to the decreased perfusion, hyperperfusion, or sudden cardiac death in the patient. 
thyroid labs are all within normal limit. Procalcitonin of 0.6 is within normal limits, which we're not thinking about a possible infection or sepsis or whatnot, as well as respiratory panel was negative for any viruses, which includes influenza and other viral pathogens. Pyrovirus B19 IgM was negative, which is one of the you know main causes of myocarditis. COVID-19 PCR was done twice and twice it was negative, as well as the toxicology Screening was negative for amphetamines, barbiturates, benzodiazepines, cocaine, cannabinoids, opioids, TCAs, ethanol, acetaminophen, and silicitates as well. So we take a step back and we look at Priscilla's differentials. So, you know, can we look at myocardial injury or potential acute ischemic events? So the ECG, we look at the rhythm. We see that it's normal. So it's supraventricular tachycardia at a heart rate at about 150 beats per minute. We look at 1, 2, and AVF, and we see that it is a left axis deviation. Looking at V1, we see that it has an incomplete right bundle branch block morphology and potential septal infarct with an age indeterminate. Mostly, though, we look at 2, 3, and AVF in our ECG, and we see that there is some ST depressions which suggests possible inferior subendocardial injury in this patient. Also looking at potential differentials where Priscilla mentioned a PE, we see that the ECG shows no signs of right heart strain, as well as no pattern S1, Q3, T3 pattern to suggest pulmonary embolism. In fact, in further workup, we also did a CTPA due to the D-dimer being 9.1 at 9.73, and we see that there was no filling defects to suggest any pulmonary embolism. Although we have to keep in mind when a patient comes in with tachycardia, the QT is hard to assess. Thus, on this ECG or the initial ECG on admission, we did not, you know, look into short or long QT or Brugada syndrome. The subsequent ECG, which the patient did not have a sinus tachycardia, there was no short or long QT or no Brugada pattern. Chest x-ray on admission was negative for any pleuroedema, a pulmonary edema, large pleurofusions, pneumothorax, or pneumomediastinum. So looking at the differentials of the patient, we see that the acute ischemic or cardiac heart disease accounts for about 70% of sudden cardiac death. The patient did come in with a troponin elevation of 4,000 and an ECG revealing ST depressions in the inferior leads, which are subjective to subendocardial injury. We also start thinking, as Priscilla stated, structural heart disease. So, you know, the echo would be one thing that we're looking into the patient. And one of the first things that we should do once a patient is stable. And then in the echo, we, you know, we could assess a heart failure, a cardiomyopathy, left ventricular hypertrophy or infiltrative cardiomyopathy as well. When it looks at the channelopathies or arrhythmogenic syndromes, we see that the ECG, the first on admission and the subsequent one did not reveal any short or long QT or any Brugada pattern as well. Myocarditis, which we still have not ruled out, even though the respiratory pathogens was negative, COVID negative, and parvovirus IgM was negative, is something to keep in mind as well as a potential differential. Drugs, potentially, you know, this is Miami Beach in Miami, and we know that we have a lot of visitors that, you know, potentially are under the influence. We see that the serum and urine toxicology were negative. Metabolic derangements, the patient did have a mild hypokalemia, although that would not really explain her presentation of sudden cardiac death. We have to now establish or exclude the presence of significant obstructive disease. So we ask ourselves, you know, when should we perform the coronary angiogram? So the recommendation by the American Heart Association is there's a class one recommendation for ST elevation MI and a class 2A recommendation is placed for selected patients if unstable or electrically unstable. Recent evidence, which when we look at two studies, important studies in 2019 and 2020, are the coronary angiography after cardiac arrest without STEMI 
which is a co-op trial, and it enrolled 552 patients without STEMI to immediate versus delay coronary angiogram. And the results were 64.5 versus 67.2 in the immediate and the delayed coronary angiogram, and there was really no improvement in survival in either group. The second study was the PERIL study, or the randomized pilot clinical trial of early coronary angiography versus no early coronary angiography after cardiac arrest without ST elevation. And this one was a smaller, again, pilot study and enrolled 99 patients. 49 had early coronary angiography, and there was no difference in 55.1% versus 48%. So the other trial that's important, and actually the most recent trial, is the Tomahawk trial, which is angiography after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest without ST elevation. And this was in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2021, and it included 530 patients with a primary endpoint of death from any cause at 30 days, and it showed no benefit over a delayed or selective strategy with a respected 30-day risk of death from any cause. So, Francisco, thank you so much for going over the additional information with regards to lab EKG and chest X-ray. And I want to just take a moment to step back and reflect on the situation. This is a 35-year-old, essentially previously healthy, apart from hypothyroidism, woman who is coming to us with sudden cardiac death with the PA arrest of initial rhythm. And you know, in this context, there is so much going on. We covered so much data and so much teaching. But just to take a step back for a moment, Priscilla outlined beautifully, the differential diagnosis coming through the door, the H's and T's. And then as we got more information step-by-step, a lot of those possible etiologies are falling off the list, right? So we talked about the metabolic aspects of the H's and T's. Even with the chest x-ray, the EKG, we're already starting to zone in on the possible causes of what's going on here, which is going to be really helpful for us to guide the next steps in the evaluation and then really for the management. And this is all in concert with aggressive steps that are being taken emergently to just you know save our life, the airway, the circulation, etc. You know, at this point, I think probably the most ominous and the most specific findings that we have are this profound elevation of cardiac biomarkers, right? And to some extent, anyone who's coming in with cardiac arrest because of supply demand mismatch, we would expect an elevation of troponin and whatnot. But a high sensitivity troponin I of over 4,200, an anti-pro BMP of over 6,800 in a previously healthy woman is very concerning and really directs our evaluation into the cardiac arena which is inclusive of, you know, and thinking about all the cardiac causes, it's inclusive of thinking about myocardial ischemia, non-ischemic structural causes, underlying arrhythmic syndromes, idiopathic etiologies, but then also pulmonary embolism. So, you know, at this point, we have to really evaluate rapidly those specific ideologies. Let's look at the echo for structural causes. We need a coronary angiogram to think about, you know, is there a coronary obstructive issue in this demographic, maybe SCAD or embolic ideology. Coronary anomalies are some of the things we might be considering, but of course, atherosclerosis remains the highest differential. So let's get to the window into the heart, Priscilla. Thanks. Yeah. What we see here are apical four-chamber views on echo, both with and without color Doppler. What we find here on echo is a low normal left ventricular ejection fraction of 54% with a low normal global left ventricular contractility. The right ventricular systolic function is impaired. There's distal RV free wall and apex hypo to akinesis. RV is normal in size. There is no evidence of any valvular heart disease. Both atria are normal in size. And there's prominent myocardial trabeculation seen in the apex as well as the lateral wall of the left ventricle. Going through the differential that we went through earlier, there is no wall motion abnormalities seen in any coronary distribution. There's no scar seen, which lowers the differential of ACS, but does not completely rule it out. 
there's no asymmetric septal thickening or hypertrophy, no systolic anterior motion, no left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, suggestive for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or apical thickening, suggestive of apical HCM, no left ventricular hypertrophy or biatrial enlargement, or RVH suggestive of infiltrative cardiomyopathy, or focal aneurysms, especially in the anteroseptal region, non-coronary wall motion abnormalities, which can suggest sarcoidosis. RV is normal in size. The function is slightly decreased. There's no excessive trabeculation seen in the right ventricle. The moderator band appears normal. It's not hyperreflective. These are all findings that could suggest the patient had ARVC. LV is normal in size, which also lowers the differential of dilated cardiomyopathy. And there is no evidence of mitral valve prolapse, no pericardial effusion that could suggest if there's any inflammatory etiology. Oh my gosh. I just have to say, Priscilla, that was absolutely masterful because you didn't just give us the echo read, but you very specifically and deliberately, in a hypothesis-generated way, went through the key findings, the pertinent negatives and positives that are relevant for this clinical picture. And, you know, like as a cardiologist, we should all be looking at all our diagnostic modalities in this way. Thank you. The next step for this patient, we got an ischemic evaluation, like mentioned earlier, because of the elevated high sensitivity troponin and EKG changes of ST depression in inferior leads, especially during a supraventricular tachycardia episode. She got a left heart cap. What it showed is that the left main originated from the left coronary cusp and was widely patent. Both the left anterior descending and left circumflex had myeluminal irregularities. The right coronary artery originated from right coronary cusp with minimal luminal irregularities. So given this sudden cardiac death in this young patient, we already have ruled out an acute ischemic event, coronary anomalies, as well as a spontaneous coronary artery dissection in this patient. So highlighting what we found in the echo and what Priscilla walked us through, the key findings are biventricular mildly reduced ejection fraction and also an increase of the trabeculations in the left ventricle. Priscilla, my question now is, will that direct you to any direction at this point? What is your thought process? Yes, given that she had LV dysfunction along with prominent trabeculations, it could point to a diagnosis of left ventricular non-compaction. To assess that or further define the trabeculations and the endocardium for accurate measurement of the non-compacted and compacted layers, we did an echo with contrast. What we find on echo with the parastole short axis view at the apex that shows multiple prominent trabeculations with the non-compacted to compacted myocardium ratio of greater than 2 is to 1. Now, it's generally recommended that analysis by echocardiography and CMR must be concordant to prevent overdiagnosis of left ventricular non-compaction, as you can see them in other conditions. So the high-resolution imaging of CMR has allowed improvement in differentiating the non-compacted and compacted myocardium. And key features, in addition to spatial resolution, is also using of late gadolinium enhancement for evaluation of fibrosis for prognostic information. The CMR for this patient showed left ventricle that was normal in size with mildly decreased global and regional systolic left ventricular function with an EF of 48%. There was apical non-compaction of the left ventricle with a non-compaction to compaction ratio of 3.6. Peterson criteria uses greater than 2.3 in end diastole, which is suggestive of apical left ventricular non-compaction cardiomyopathy. 
there is no evidence of late gadolinium enhancement of the left ventricle to suggest myocardial scar or fibrosis, infarct or infiltration. There is no evidence of myocarditis. The right ventricular function was normal. The RV was normal in size. There was no late gadolinium enhancement of the right ventricle and no regional wall motion abnormalities of the right ventricle. No CMR minor or major criteria that met for ARVC. So in summary, we have this young woman who has presented with her first episode of sudden cardiac death. We have ruled out acute coronary syndrome, spontaneous coronary artery dissection and coronary anomaly with the left heart cath. The echo showed global LV dysfunction with prominent LV trabeculations that was further confirmed by echo with contrast and cardiac MRI to have a diagnosis of left ventricular non-compaction cardiomyopathy. She had no scar, no late gadolinium enhancement of cardiac MRI that was suggestive of myocardial scar. Priscilla, thank you for that important diagnosis of left ventricular non-compaction in this patient that presented with sudden cardiac arrest and is going to be life-changing from now on, knowing what is a potential cause of this event, which is major in her life. Saying this, I would like to give a summary of what is her clinical course up to now. We have her on the cardiac critical unit for at least 24 hours plus her initial arrest. The next morning, we found her unstable and requiring vasopressin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. We suspect that at this time, the volume depletion to all this stress that she was going through was the leading cause. And also, after we start IV fluid resuscitation, she subsequently improved her urine output and her hemodynamic. Then she recovered. She was recovering steady and become stable. We were able to extubate her. And the first initial neurological exam did found only an aphasia. So we were very hopeful that she will recover. So we were planning with the cardiac critical care unit attending Dr. Escolar, what was the best next step? And by the guidelines, we decided to go for an ICD placement for secondary prevention now that she had this major event. And also, as Priscilla was mentioned, the biventricular heart failure that we noticed in the echo and in the cardiac MRI confirming the ejection fraction in 48 prompt us to start the goal-directed medical therapy with beta blockers, ARDS, and spironolactin. And subsequently, she was able to walk out of the hospital. That was amazing for all of us. So we followed her in the clinic. And in the cardio clinic, we did genetic testing. We were able to find no significant genes that prompt identification of any cardiac myopathy that was genetically transmitted in her. and it the following needs to be a screen, so we will discuss that later. And also, the only gene we found was the ALMS1, which is really not related with any left ventricular non-compaction. So far, there is no case report that I could identify in the literature, so it was not related. And she made an excellent recovery. She went after rehab and continued to follow up with us in the cardio clinic, and the repeat echo was impressive. Normal biventricular function, there was nothing happening in the ICD, no shock. So we were happy to see her ventricular neurocompaction was established as a diagnosis and no other further events happened months after. So with this saying, I will lead the final discussion to our cardio fellow. So we have our diagnosis of ventricular non-compaction. So what is ventricular non-compaction? So 
It's a complex myocardial disorder with distinct phenotype characterized by prominent left ventricular trabeculi and deep intratrabecular recesses. And, you know, when we look at left ventricular non-compaction, you know, there has been a debate since 1980 whether this is a genetic cardiomyopathy or not. In this patient, you know, being 35, she's kind of in the borderline. There was a study by Wanning, uh, which classified 327 unrelated patients into three categories, genetic, probably genetic, and sporadic. And what he found is mostly in patients that were, you know, less than 35, it was mostly genetic. And then we have patients over 35 being likely sporadic mutations. Most mutations or most genetic proteins that were involved were more sarcomere type of proteins. The left ventricular non-compaction normally accounts about approximately 18 to 44% of adult or pediatric cases when you look at the genetic causes, which mostly an autosomal dominant transmission. So now, Francisco, how do we really diagnose a left ventricular non-compaction once we have these? Great question. So I think Priscilla, you know, she went over that. The main thing in left ventricular non-compaction is the echocardiogram, the number one thing and, you know, the cheapest type of modality that we have. With the echocardiogram, we use a Jenny criteria, which we have three other criterias in use, but Jenny criteria is the most widely validated criteria, which has four different criteria. No existing cardiac abnormalities being one of them. Number two being two-layered myocardial structure, a thin compacted epicardial layer and a thicker non-compacted endocardial layer with a maximal non-compaction to compaction of greater than two. And this is measured at end systole in short axis view. And the other criteria being a non-compaction predominantly in mid-lateral, mid-inferior and apical segments and collar Doppler evidence of profuse intratrabecular recesses, which Priscilla went over as well. So Francisco, knowing that now cardiac MRI what role does it have in these cases? So a cardiac MRI has increased the diagnostic accuracy in the diagnosis of left ventricular non-compaction. It has been suggested that non-compaction to compaction ratio of greater than 2.3 in diastole distinguish pathological non-compaction with a sensitivity of 86% and a specificity of 99% respectively. Though studies have shown an increased specificity in cardiac MRI, caution is needed at it may overestimate the presence of left ventricular non-compaction. Wow. So we really need to do an MRI. And now we diagnose and how do we treat Francisco? So, you know, the main clinical manifestations and complications of left ventricular non-compaction are dyspnea, chest pain, palpitation, syncope, or even an abnormal echo. You know, the complications are normally heart failure symptoms, where it could be heart failure with reduced EF or preserved EF, ventricular tachycardia, VT or VF, atrial fibrillation, or even cerebrovascular accidents, including a thromboembolism. So how do we manage left ventricular non-compaction? If the patient has heart failure with a reduced EF being the most common presentation, treatment will follow guideline-directed medical therapy. If an arrhythmia is suspected, we have a role for Holter ECG to detect atrial fibrillation or ventricular arrhythmias. And as well, you know, ICD is also suggested as well in patients with left ventricular non-compaction having an EF less than 35%. When we look at the risk for thromboembolism in patients with left ventricular non-compaction, it has not been well established. Although a case series has noted an increase in clot formation due to the increase in intratrabecular recesses. Although no definitive criteria for anticoagulation has been suggested in patients with left ventricular non-compaction and atrial fibrillation who meet current recommendations, 
Previous studies have found patients with a history of CVA to have higher scores of CHAD-VAS compared to patients without a history of CVA. There is a weak recommendation for anticoagulations in patients with left ventricular non-compaction and left ventricular EF of less than 40% with or without atrial fibrillation. Wow. So we really need to follow the guidelines in terms of treating all of our patients. So thank you, Francisco, for that. And now just to highlight what we did with our patient in the clinic, what is the role of the genetic testing in these cases? Do you mind enlighten us, please? Of course. So genetic testing has an important role in the management of left ventricular non-compaction. The identification of genetic left ventricular non-compaction is more predictive of major adverse cardiovascular events in the pediatric population than in adults, based on the findings from Wanning study. It has also been noted that patients with left ventricular dysfunction predicted at higher risk of MACE in carriers of the mutation compared to non-genetic cases. Now, the 2018 Heart Failure Society of America guideline recommends a careful family history for at least three generations and screening of first-degree relatives of all patients with left ventricular non-compaction. Clinical screening should include physical history, echocardiogram, physical examination, electrocardiogram, and creatinine kinase. The Heart Failure Society of America recommends genetic testing for the individual displaying the most effect phenotype of disease. If the individual displays an abnormal disease-causing variant, then first-degree relatives are recommended to undergo clinical screening for the disease followed by genetic counseling. So thank you, Francisco, for giving us those teaching points. And now, just to give the takeaway, which we have five. The number one among patients with left ventricular non-compaction, heart failure, ventricular, and atrial arrhythmia commonly are the symptoms of presentation. Two. Echocardiogram is usually diagnostic using the Jenny criteria, and cardiac MRI is used for diagnosis when echo is inconclusive and may also provide also prognostic information. Number three, the management of complications like heart failure should be treated accordingly to the standard guidelines and ACD placement or secondary prevention in patients with ventricular arrhythmias or sudden cardiac arrest like our patient and for primary prevention in patients with EF less than 35% and symptoms corresponding with NYHA 2 to 3. Four, the genetic testing is recommended in those with most prominent disease. And five, based on the Heart Failure Society of America guidelines for 2018, a careful family history for at least three generations and screening per degree relatives of patients diagnosed with left ventricular non-compaction is recommended. So thank you. You guys, this has been such a phenomenal discussion and really, you know, all with this patient in mind, again, 35-year-old, previously healthy, who accidentally died, right? I mean, I think this is such an important discussion to keep in mind for her and for patients like her. I've got three brief comments. One is regards to the case. She has this morphological features and now this clinical syndrome of LV non-compaction cardiomyopathy, but something happened, right? I mean, there was some sort of abrupt event that was characterized by profound myocardial injury with a very elevated high-sensitivity troponin. So I do wonder if she's somebody who has had subclinical non-compaction cardiomyopathy and there was a second hit on top of that, right? And she just didn't have the physiologic cardiovascular reserve to deal with it. She came in with a viral prodrome. Could there have been a second hit of idiopathic or viral myocarditis? Now, I know the CMR was not suggestive of that, but you know the sensitivity is not 100%. Or could there have been a minoca or MI with non-obstructive coronary disease? Because for instance, maybe she had a plaque rupture and it recanalized or there was an embolic 
Malik coronary event that recanalized, I think the likelihood of that is probably lower because like Priscilla said, there was no segmental wild motion abnormality. But I think, you know, sometimes we don't have all the right answers. What we do is do our best to keep the patient alive with a multidisciplinary stellar team utilizing the ED physicians, the cardiovascular images, the critical care cardiologists, and all the ancillary staff that are teaming up to take care of her in the acute setting, but then also do everything we can to keep her alive and prevent this from happening down the road with GDMT, good follow-up, secondary prevention, ICD, etc. A question I had that I think it remains unanswered is, you know, this is somebody who had non-compassion cardiomyopathy, maybe with a second hit, couldn't tolerate that. Like, what would be the recommendation or counseling for her if she wished to get pregnant down the road? And I just don't know the answer to that. I think it would probably involve shared decision-making and very close follow-up, right? The two comments I have about non-compaction cardiomyopathy are, you know, there's something I find very troubling and from a research perspective, very exciting about non-compaction is that we still don't quite know what it is, right? Is it a very distinct and isolated disease state or is it a grab bag of different syndromes, right? So at the heart of it, it's in the name. It's a morphological finding. LV non-compaction, the diagnostic criteria are based on the non-compacted segment on echo and CMR. And that's just morphology. The patient doesn't care about morphology. They care about the syndrome. And the syndrome is this trifecta of really bad things, right? Heart failure, malignant arrhythmias with the possibility of sudden death, case in point, and systemic embolism with a risk of stroke and other emboli. And so you can almost imagine a Venn diagram of people that have hypertrabeculation and then people that have the clinical syndrome. And by the way, the clinical syndrome, you know, these are all things that people with dilated cardiomyopathy can get in some reports. The rate of these events is not dissimilar from people with advanced dilated cardiomyopathy. And CMR is a great diagnostic tool, but the closer we look with more resolution, the more we find. And so, yes, we increase the sensitivity, but we also probably drop the specificity of finding hypertrabeculation without the associated clinical syndrome leading potentially to increased testing and anxiety and over-treatment, right? So again, this is a great untapped area for research. There are markers that can maybe help guide the association of the hypertrabeculation morphology with the clinical syndrome, things like reduced injection fraction, presence of LGE on CMR. But again, there's a lot of potential for study here for those interested. And then my last comment for non-compaction is I'm going to refer back to the four P's of prevention that we teach on cardiators for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. They all are relevant here. And let's just go over them real quick. One is prevent symptoms. And here really it's the heart failure, where right? Patients with non-compaction cardiomyopathy have a risk for progressive heart failure. And so, you know, we manage the fluid status, we manage them with GDMT to help them feel better, improve their quality of life. Two is prevent stroke, right? Systemic embolism. And so the threshold for anticoagulation is low in these patients. And, you know, the diagnosis is a prerequisite to that. So we have to have this whole conversation about diagnosis. Three is prevent sudden cardiac death in the patient, all right? And this patient earns a secondary prevention ICD, but, you know, the decisions around primary prevention ICD are fairly complex, particularly for the syndrome. And four, prevent sudden cardiac death in the family. And this is where, you know, this discussion that Francisco and Douglas had about genetic testing, cascade screening, family screening becomes so important. It's very easy for a lot of things to take care of our patient, but then forget like, hey, they've got three kids. They've got brothers and sisters, and then they all have family members. So, you know, you're not just taking care of the patient, we're taking care of the family. But guys, you know, I learned so much from this wonderful discussion. Congratulations on the tremendous care this patient received at Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami, Florida. And thank you so much for hosting us there in your hospital. The view is absolutely lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure, and hopefully we'll come back again. Thank you for having us. We would like to invite our expert, Dr. Christos Mijos. He is a director of the non-invasive lab at Mount Sinai and also an associate professor at Columbia. He is our father figure and our go-to guy when it comes to echo imaging at our institution. And we all look up to him 
for his leadership and advice as well. Dr. Mijos, any comments on the case? Greetings to all. My name is Dr. Christos Mijos. I'm the director of the Echocardiography Laboratory at the Columbia University Division of Cardiology, Mount Sinai Heart Institute in Miami Beach, Florida. Today, I'm going to talk briefly about our case regarding left ventricular non-compaction in a young female with a preserved left ventricular ejection fraction. And the way that I'll go about discussing the case is essentially to highlight five key takeaway points that I think are important when assessing this case and trying to apply some of the concepts to our clinical practice. The first point is the definition of left ventricular non-compaction, and this is a myocardial disorder that is characterized by excessive and prominent trabeculations with deep recesses in a thin compacted myocardial layer which communicates with the left ventricular cavity. Now that being said, there are three forms of left ventricular non-compaction, essentially a genetic, sporadic, and acquired form. The genetic form is important to remember that there are gene overlaps that are shared with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, in particular apical hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The acquired forms that you may see in clinical practice are hypertrabeculation in athletes or highly trained athletes, patients with longstanding hypertension, and African-American patients. It is, as we mentioned regarding the gene overlap, it's very important to differentiate left ventricular non-compaction in patients from patients with apical HCM and then obviously the patients with acquired trabeculations. And this is where some advanced echocardiographic techniques such as global longitudinal strain can be of uh, significant help. The second point is to remember the criteria that we use, particularly by echocardiography, which is the first-line test for left ventricular non-compaction to diagnose the disease. The most well-known and applied criteria are the Jenny criteria, and these have four main components. Number one, you need to have a two-layered myocardial structure with a thin compacted layer and a thick non-compacted layer measured at end systole in the parasternal short axis view, and you want to see a non-compacted to compacted ratio greater than two. The second finding is absence of any coexisting cardiac structural abnormalities, such as what we mentioned above regarding the genetic overlaps and the acquired forms. Number three, you need to see prominent and excessive trabeculations with deep intratrabecular recesses. And number four, you want to see these intratrabecular recesses supplied by intraventricular blood when interrogated by color Doppler. The third point to remember is that there are other echocardiographic criteria, which include the Rotterdam criteria and algorithms that are proposed by Chin and Stahlberg, and these can be found in our manuscript in tables one and two. And it's important to be at least somewhat familiar with these criteria as there can be subtle changes in left ventricular non-compaction, particularly in the early phenotypic expression that may not fit the full Jenny criteria. It's also important to note that cardiac MRI has significantly increased the accuracy of diagnosing left ventricular non-compaction. The criteria or cutoffs in terms of the compacted ratios is somewhat different and measured a bit differently than echo. So by cardiac MRI, you want to see a non-compacted to compacted ratio of greater than 2.3 in diastole, which distinguishes pathologic non-compaction with a sensitivity of 86% and a specificity of 99%. The fourth point to remember is that the most common clinical presentation of left ventricular non-compaction is progressive heart failure with reduced ejection fraction after a quiescent period. 
the common complications that will occur in these patients that may be the first expression of the disease and may bring these patients to clinical attention are both supraventricular and ventricular arrhythmias, cerebrovascular accidents, syncope, and less commonly sudden cardiac death. And then finally, the last point that I'd like to briefly discuss is that the phenotypic and clinical evidence of left ventricular non-compaction with a preserved left ventricular ejection fraction is scarce, which is the novelty of the present case that we presented from our institution. In a study from our institution, our echocardiography database at Mount Sinai Heart Institute, we compared 17 left ventricular non-compaction patients with controls, and these non-compaction patients all had a preserved ejection fraction. What we were able to show and what we observed was that these patients have an impaired left ventricular geometry, they have decreased longitudinal strain mechanics, They have an increased myocardial stiffness, left atrial remodeling, and higher pulmonary pressures when compared with controls. In particular, the global longitudinal strain was significantly decreased compared to controls with a mean of negative 15.4% versus negative 18.9% in healthy patients. And we found a high prevalence of rigid body rotation of 57% in the left ventricular non-compaction patients versus 14% in controls. And what rigid body rotation means is essentially the base and the apex, instead of rotating in a clockwise and counterclockwise rotation, both rotate in the same direction. And this leads to increased myocardial stiffness, impaired diastolic filling, and so forth. It's also important to note that left ventricular non-compaction patients with a preserved ejection fraction on CMR have increased apical T1 mapping of extracellular volume. This is consistent with fibrosis and apex deformation. And finally, what I'd like to stress regarding patients with non-compaction or preserved EF is that we all need to have a high index of suspicion for us to pick this disease entity up and be able to diagnose these patients before untoward complications occur. Now, with that being said, I would like to sincerely thank the CardioNerds team for inviting us to present our case. I'd like to congratulate Drs. Wesley, Weta, and Salguero, our residents and fellows here at Mount Sinai that did a wonderful job putting this case together. And with that, we'll see you soon again on CardioNerds. Beep. Beep.